Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here. I remember the first time I took one of my children to the movie theater. It was early 2014. I took my daughter, Elsa, to see the movie, believe it or not, Frozen. It was such a fun experience with her. Her first time, her eyes got huge when we walked into the room and she saw the pre-show commercials playing in this gigantic screen. And I told her, just you wait. And then the lights went off completely as the trailers began to roll. I don't remember what movies were advertised that day, but the visuals, as, as you know, they got more exciting and the sound got even bigger and her eyes got even wider as she turned and looked at me and I said to her, just you wait. And then the graphic with the Disney logo and the castle comes up and the opening song kicks in. Na, 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 hey, na, na. And the snowflakes start to fall and the frozen screen lights up and the guys start singing while harvesting their blocks of ice. And the animation is gorgeous. And the sound is larger than life and Elsa may have even gasped while she tried to take it all in. And she turns and looks at me and I say to her, just you wait. <laughs> All right, I'm dramatizing the experience just a little bit. I admit. But it is true that I had almost as much fun watching her as I had watching the movie. And when each part of her experience was better than the last, it pictured a profound truth from the Bible's book of the prophet Isaiah that we're going to look at this morning. And that truth is that some things are worth waiting for. Some things are worth waiting for. We've been studying Isaiah as a church, and we've been seeing for a number of weeks now many chapters of divine judgment against evil nations. This morning we come to chapter 24. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 338. And in chapter 24, we see why it was worth wading through all those tough chapters since chapter 13 of the judgment. Because Isaiah has been working towards something bigger than even the geopolitics of the 8th century BC when he, where he was living. The events of his world at that time were foreshadowing the greater events of a world yet to come. And with each successive pronouncement of judgment since chapter 13, it's as though Isaiah has been saying, just you wait. Just you wait. Just you wait. There is something coming at the end of all this. And that's how we ought to approach our own experience even as God's judgment falls in our generation, when you feel like you just can't take any more from life, you can't take any more of your own sin, or you can't take any more of the sins other people are committing against you, when you can't take any more bad news about another sexual abuse cover-up, when you can't take any more overlooked promotions at work, or you can't take any more unruly children at home, 
Or you can't take any more papers or quizzes or lab reports. And if it's not so bad yet, students, just you wait. When you can't take any more of your illness or your infirmity that weighs you down so terribly. Isaiah says to you, just you wait. Wait until you see what's coming. Because you can see in your outline, he'll say three things to us this morning. Yahweh will desolate this evil world. And Yahweh reigns from his city in glory. And Yahweh, our God, is worth waiting for. That's where we're going in these chapters this morning. Let me pray for our time. Our Father, please help us now as we live in a time of waiting. Help us to see that you, our God, are worth waiting for. Give us the eyes of faith that we might see what is coming at the end of all this judgment. Help us to see Jesus more clearly and to set our hope in him. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, in verses 1 through 20 of chapter 24, we see that Yahweh will desolate this evil world. We've been through two cycles of judgment on nations, on the world of Isaiah's day. Now he begins a third cycle of judgments with this chapter. And this time, the judgment from God is not against any particular nation at any particular time. This judgment is against all the earth. It is cosmic in scope. It is apocalyptic in flavor. Let me read verses 1 to 20. Behold, Yahweh will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people... So with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for Yahweh has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. The wine mourns. The vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done, they lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of Yahweh they shout from the west. 
Therefore, in the east, give glory to Yahweh. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. Now, this poem has something of a V shape to its structure. It begins by talking about the whole earth being made desolate in verse 1. And it moves on to ver by verse 10 to describe a city being wasted and left desolate in verse 12. And then it moves back out again in verses 19 and 20 to talk about the whole earth once again, being utterly broken, split apart, and violently shaken, staggering like a drunk man. Here's what's going on. This is the big picture here. Isaiah has moved on from judgment on particular nations of his day in the 8th century B.C. And he's moved on to a day long in the future. A day when all the earth will be judged. And that's what he's talking about here. We see, if I walk back through it, in verses 1 to 3, we see that this judgment is comprehensive in that it affects every woman, man, and child, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the creditor, so with the, the, the borrower, the, the lender. It, it affects everyone. In verses 4 through 6, so it's comprehensive in 1 to 3. In verses 4 through 6, we see that this judgment is deserved because the land itself has been defiled by the feet of lawbreakers. People are doing whatever they wish, regardless of God's wishes for them. And because of that, a curse on the earth has been devouring them, verse 6. And so verses 1 to 6 introduce this judgment of all the earth. That's the first stanza. But then in the second stanza, verses 7 to 12, they describe the impending doom once again. Goes back over it, but from a different angle. This time he uses the metaphor of a city. The wasted city. And this is no particular city that he's talking about. It's not Jerusalem or Babylon or Tyre, but this is the whole world personified, so to speak, as a city. But it's not personified because he doesn't use the metaphor of a person. It, it's cityfied. He uses this metaphor of a city to describe the whole world. This is the world city. This is the, 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 the ideal, idealized city of man that stands in opposition to the Creator God. This is the city of doom that trusts in its own merriment and looks to the things it has done for itself 
for its security. In a sense, this city is Babel from Genesis 11, where the ancients tried to build a tower whose top would reach to the heavens. This city is Sodom from Genesis 19, whose immorality had no restraint. This city is Egypt from the book of Exodus. Egypt who built monuments to her own glory through the oppression of God's image bearers. This city is Babylon from the book of Isaiah and the other prophets, the home of foulness and defilement. This city is sin city. It is an ivory tower. It is the Moulin Rouge. It is the Pentagon. It is Capitol Hill. It is Beaver Stadium. Pick whatever you can imagine where people, wherever people go to celebrate themselves and to forge their own destinies apart from God. This city is the world as we know it. And so after describing the fate of this city where joy has grown dark and their songs have grown quiet, where wine no longer satisfies them, The poem moves back out in the final stanza to clarify once again that this city is all the earth. In verses 17 through 20. In verse 17, we see the terror of the judgment is inescapable. Those who, verse 18, those who try to flee the terror will fall into a pit and whoever climbs from the pit is caught in a snare. This is inescapable. In verse 20, all of this is because of the earth's transgression. Its law-breaking lies heavy upon it. Now that I've traced the flow of the poem, let me go back to the center of it to unpack what exactly the fate of this world city is, this place every one of us calls home. This place that is the only world we have ever known. Those of us who actually enjoy some of what goes on at Beaver Stadium. This is this is our life and this is okay that we enjoy some of this, but but what is the fate of these things? In particular, the coming judgment is one where in verse 11, all joy has grown dark. In verse 7, alcohol has lost its luster. In verse 8, music and mirth are stilled. In verse 9, They don't really enjoy themselves with the song and the drink anymore. Those things have become bitter to those who drink it. And while the world's song is stilled, their mirth grows dark and the song is stilled. Notice what arises to take its place in verse 13. A new gleaning comes from the harvest of the world's population, verse 14, they lift up their voices to sing a new song for joy. It's joy over the majesty of Yahweh. In verse 15, it's about glory to Yahweh, the glory, the the, the specialness, the uniqueness of the name of the God of Israel. In verse 16, it's songs of praise, songs of glory to the righteous one. So while the world's song of self-praise is stilled, the song of Yahweh's glorious praise grows in volume. How does this apply? What's going on here? While these things happen, 
Friends, which song are you singing? Because one song will grow quiet and one song will increase in volume over the course of history and into eternity. Every one of our lives is a part of one song or another. Either you are singing with your life the song of self-love and self-congratulation and self-celebration, or you are singing the song of Christ's love, Jesus' love, and praise to the righteous one. This is why Christian churches sing. Not every religion does that. But Christianity doesn't work right without singing. It's not because we're the greatest singers in the world. People don't come here just to listen to us sing. Maybe Allie Hallman, but not the rest of us. We sing because we have the greatest song in the cosmos. And we can't help but sing it. This is the song we were made for. It's the song that's been composed into the fabric of the universe. The song of praise to the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has since Isaiah's time revealed himself in the God-man of Jesus of Nazareth. So when you tire of the world's song and you feel like you don't fit in, just you wait. Just you wait. Yahweh will desolate this evil world and he will repopulate it with his own songs of praise. His own songs of praise to himself. But you may ask, who is he to demand such a thing? How is his own self-praise different from our self-praise? Why is it okay for him to expect songs of praise to himself, but it's not okay for us to expect that? And Isaiah tells us that in the next section. Let me read verses 21 to 23. Yahweh reigns from his city in glory. On that day, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For Yahweh of armies reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So verse 23 right here tells us that Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is the commander of hosts of armies. He reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Now Mount Zion was one of the main hills that the city of Jerusalem had been built on. And in Isaiah and other prophets like him, Mount Zion becomes a picture of God's holy abode, his palace from which he rules the world. So make no mistake, this God is the only God fit to rule the earth. No other gods will do. No other gods will do. Not Allah, not the Buddha. No other gods will do. Why will no other gods do? Because verse 21, we see that only Yahweh is able to, he, he has the almighty power to punish both supernatural beings. You see, he takes all those false gods, all those imposters, and he locks them up. This is what he's going to do with them. Those supernatural beings in heaven and the natural beings on earth, he has the almighty power to punish them. And 
with his moral perfection, he's able to do this. In verse 22, only he has the might to enforce this and to incarcerate the opposition. Only he can punish them eternally with justice. In verse 23, only he has such brilliant splendor and majestic glory that, check this out, did you see what he says? The moon will be confounded and the sun will be ashamed. You see, those heavenly bodies have nothing on our God. Next to him, that burning ball of hydrogen and helium in the sky from which all life on earth is sustained, that sun will look next to him like a laser pointer in the midst of a nuclear explosion. The sun will be ashamed because his glory is so much greater. Friends, here's the point. If you are weary, if you are burdened, frustrated, or exhausted by this present evil age, just you wait. Just you wait. Yahweh reigns. He will take care of it as a conquering king. and He will take all that evil and all those imposters and he will lock them up and he will deal with them as his justice determines. Your trust in him will not leave you disappointed. But sometimes it seems like he's taking forever to bring justice on the earth. Is it really worth the wait? Do we have to keep watching and waiting even while we suffer? This is where Isaiah goes now in chapter 25. Yahweh our God is worth waiting for. The song of Yahweh, songs of praise to the righteous one that he talked about in chapter 24, they, those songs now make a key change. In chapter 25, we hear Isaiah's own song at first, but then by the end of the chapter, a chorus will join him as it becomes the song of all those who have been redeemed by the king of kings. Let me read this to you. Isaiah 25. O Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, Yahweh of armies will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For Yahweh has spoken. Now check out when the chorus joins. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But Yahweh will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. This song is really a sonata in three brief movements celebrating something about Yahweh, the God of heaven. In the first movement, verses 1 to 5, he is praised as the ruiner of cities. He is the ruiner of cities. In verse 1, Isaiah sings that he's done wonderful things and the most Wonderful thing that Isaiah singles out in verse 2 is that he's taken the world city that has opposed him and he's reduced it to a heap of rubble. And in verse 5, the impact of this is he has silenced the song of the ruthless in favor of his own song. That's the first movement. He's the ruiner of cities. In the second movement, verses 6 through 8, he is the swallower of death. He is the swallower of death. In verse 6, Yahweh spreads a lavish feast for all people who come to him. And then in verse 7, he takes out the greatest enemy that has threatened all the nations, the covering that has been over them like, like a threat of doom over them. And that enemy, we're told in verse 8, is death. He has swallowed up death. Death will be swallowed up in victory. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse, Isaiah 25.8 in 1 Corinthians, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, when he speaks of the resurrection of the dead in Christ who will join him in glory. That death is swallowed up. That's the second movement. He is the swallower of death. And in the third movement of this sonata, verses 9 through 12, where the chorus joins in, he is our God and he is the one worth waiting for. The one worth waiting for, we're told in verse 9, this is our God. And two times we're told, we have waited for him. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation that comes on the last day. So far, Isaiah, as he instructs his people in the 8th century B.C. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing is that God would fulfill these predictions and he would live out this song in a way that nobody ever expected. You see, Isaiah sets up the Jews for generations to await the revelation of God's anointed king who would reign on Mount Zion. 
Just you wait, Isaiah says. Just you wait. And on the last day, all the hostile nations will be silenced and evil will be done away with forever. And we, the people of God, will be vindicated at the eternal feast when death is swallowed up forever and our tears are wiped away and we are resurrected to eternal life with our God and his Messiah, the Chosen One. Death is swallowed up. Just you wait. It will be worth waiting for. But then Jesus comes along. This guy from nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, and he goes around in the first century A.D., the year of our Lord. You see, history was rearranged around him. But he goes around preaching that the kingdom of God has already come in his own self, in his ministry. And he claims that Yahweh is reigning over the nations, and the nations actually begin streaming to him. He finds greater faith at times with outsiders from other nations than he does with insiders from the Jewish people. And Jesus is lavish in his mercy and his blessing. He wipes away tears. He unwinds death for a lucky few. And at the moment of his greatest glory, when the sun is ashamed to show its face toward him, he suffers and he dies on a cross. Everything goes dark for a few hours which then turns into a few days. The sun starts shining again, but the metaphorical darkness doesn't go away for a few days. And then on the third day, he comes back from the dead and he lives to tell everybody about what happened in his own body. He conquers death, swallowing it up in victory, proving that he was exactly who he said he was. God in the flesh, the chosen king who came to silence the song of the ruthless. And so, friends, here's the thing. We no longer wait. Isaiah says to his people, just you wait. But Jesus has come and he's accomplished this for us. All we have to do is align our hopes with this king of Israel and we join the song. We proclaim that he is the king of all the earth. There is no Lord beside him. We don't have to wait. And yet, and yet we actually do still wait, don't we? Here's the twist ending that nobody expected. Instead of swallowing up death forever, once and for all, bringing an end to evil and hostility, establishing himself on Mount Zion, the world seems to continue on as it did before. Yeah, Jesus, he spends 40 days with his people, but then he, he goes up to heaven and, and life goes on and Rome continues ruling and, and people keep sinning and the ruthless keep singing. We still suffer and die ourselves. We still put up with oppression from the ruthless. We still wrestle with our sin nature and with the evil one who seeks to devour us and with this present evil age. You see, what happens here is, what nobody ever expected is that the future and final kingdom of God has broken into the present in the person of Jesus and his resurrection where he conquered death is the guarantee that our resurrection is on its way. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. 
where he quotes Isaiah 25. He says, in the middle of history, God stepped in and did for Jesus, he did for one man what he promised to do for all of his people. And so there's a sense in which we no longer wait. He came and he did the work and his work is finished. But there's another sense in which we we still wait for him. We've not yet joined his song in unperishable immortality. What does all of this mean by way of application? If you want to follow Jesus, three quick things for you. Wait, feast, and sing. Wait, feast, and sing. If you want to follow Jesus, it's worth it to wait for Jesus to bring final salvation to you. It will come. His resurrection is the promise to you that it must happen. So just you wait. And in the meantime, feast. Feast. Jesus has given you his word, his spirit, his people, and his righteousness. And all these things are a taste of the future world that has already broken into this one. That future feast that he will spread for all peoples. And as you feast, you can sing. Proclaim among the nations the glorious salvation your God has brought you because that song is growing in fervor while he works on silencing the other one. But I must end with a sober reminder. Wait, feast, and sing. That's for you if you want to follow Jesus. But if you do not want to follow Jesus or you do not yet follow him, for you I have three things as well. Please, don't wait. Stop feasting and check your life's song. Please, don't wait. It is not worth it for you to wait for Jesus to bring the final judgment. It will happen. And so today is the day for you to trust him with your life. Don't wait another day. And please, stop feasting. The stuff you love in this world will not give you what you are looking for. One commentator said this well, to want nothing but this world is to end up with nothing but want. So please stop feasting. And finally, please check your life's song. If the song of your life, if all you have is to sing about your own deeds, your, your academic accomplishment, your own success, your well-being, your song will eventually be silenced in favor of another song of praise to the righteous one. Please give yourself to a new song which will last forever. When death is swallowed up in victory and every tear is wiped from your face, this song belongs only to the rescue and the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, this is our hope that you will one day desolate this evil world. You reign from your city in glory. And you are our God and you are worth waiting for. Please help us to wait on Jesus. Help us to feast in the meantime. 
and to sing the song of your glory. Praise to the righteous one. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.